Well, for a little while now, I've been preaching an expository series, a, a, a passage by passage, verse by verse, section by section passage in the book of Jonah. And I've entitled this series, A Glimpse of God's Heart, because it not only does show us more of the grace and justice of God, and much about God's own great heart, it also reveals a lot about our heart, particularly as we see it reflected and manifested in God's servant, Jonah. He didn't exactly score 100 on his test, and we don't either. But that's why the grace of God has come for sinners like Jonah and me and you. Our scripture reading today is from the second chapter of Jonah in our Bibles. Um, I told you last week that the, uh, for, that's verse 17 of chapter 1 is really the first verse in the Hebrew Bible. But such as it is, we dealt with that last week. And today we're going to be reading for our scripture reading Jonah chapter 2 beginning at verse 1 through verse 9. As we are dealing with the prayer that Jonah uttered in a deep and dark place. The word of the Lord, Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The depth surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit O oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word will always remain. Let's once again ask his blessing upon its reading and hearing now. Heavenly Father, once again in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the greater Jonah, Lord, that came to fulfill that which
which we are looking at today and have through, go through this experience in some ways analogous, but you are a greater Jonah. You brought greater blessing, Lord, in what you did when you came back from the grave. Father, I pray today that once again the help of the Holy Spirit will be given, that we might be able to see light and truth because of you, through your Spirit and by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, I focused on what we might call the externals. Jonah, in this part of his story, the external part of that. He got swallowed up by a big fish, remember? And eventually, in the Lord's time, after some lessons hopefully were learned, he was spit out in the direction to be able to resume his call. However, external circumstances aside, that was last week in John 1, 17 and chapter 2, verse 10. Those are the bookends. Now we're going to look at the meat in the middle of the sandwich that we talked about last week. It's important today to focus not on the external, but on the internal on what was actually going on in the heart and soul and mind of the prophet that had gone astray. And the Lord had, as it were, caught him in his mitt. What was going on inside of him? A look at this prayer that he made in the belly of the sea creature. Now, in the first verse, it says Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He knew there was only one God that could save and help him, and that is the God to whom he prayed. There is no other. There are no other alternatives. Many people today love to tell you there are. Many ways to God. There are not. There is only one. Salvation is of the Lord, we'll hear at the end, and of the Lord alone. Though Jonah had been cast low and brought low in his descent into the misery of the bowels of this great sea creature, yet he found that place, of all places, a place of mercy. He discovered something about mercy and grace in such a destitute place. How can that be? His descent was great. But God rescued him, as it were, the title suggests, from the depths of woe. Isn't that amazing? That's sometimes where we actually find and God shows up the biggest in our lives. Not when everything's going great. That's when we're in most spiritual danger. It's when we know we're in trouble and desperate and we know we have no way to fix this ourselves. That's when we turn to the Lord. And because Jonah did, ultimately, the Lord brought him out of the jaws of death to ascend and serve God's purpose once again in the land of the living, 
even though Jonah was convinced as we start this story that he's a goner. He's done. Might as well stick a fork in him. But God wasn't through with him. And he found mercy. Now, to see how all this happened, we're going to use three points this morning. The crisis, the crossroads, and the climax. Jonah's going to go through a crisis in his emotions, and his heart, and his mind, and his thinking. And then there's going to be a turning point. Hope's going to rise again in his heart. And ultimately, a climax that points to what the whole Bible points to through and through. And Jonah once again confesses and affirms that truth. So, let's look at those three things today. First of all, the crisis. That's found in chapter 2. The second part, what we call B, if you want to think of it that way, 2B through 6A. The first part of, of the uh, second part of chapter 2, uh, verse 2, excuse me, and all the way through the first half of verse 6. Listen again as I read. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly, excuse me, prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, and here starts the prayer, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and flood, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, and weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Wow. <laughs> what kind of a prayer is this? What kind of prayer? Dark, fearful. What kind of prayer is this? Well, it appears to be a poem or a psalm because the Psalms are Hebrew poetry. It's a poem or a psalm adapted from a well-known material. This is not something that, that Jonah was just making up on the fly. After all, we've got to remember that the Hebrews knew their Bible well, especially prophets like this. And they knew the Psalms like the back of their hand. It, was, it would have been no problem for Jonah to, in that misery, in the stinking hot belly of the fish, he could have easily recalled scripture after scripture of different psalms. And he knew the different types of psalms. And he happens to be putting together, whether this was strung together from several psalms that he knew or whatever, but as he was composing, as it were, this prayer in the belly of the fish, he puts together what is known as a psalm of thanksgiving. Now that may seem kind of strange there, because right now he doesn't seem to be saying anything about thanksgiving yet. But that's the way those psalms worked. Let me show you a comparison chart. Um, I believe we've got one there, Michael. If you compare Jonah's psalm, and the first part of it particularly, with Psalm 120 and Psalm 18.6, look at that. Uh, psalm 120, 
once is, to, to the Lord in my distress, I cried out and, and he answered me. And then look at the Jonah one. I cried out because of, of my distress to the Lord and he answered me from Sheol's belly. I cried out, help, and you answered me. And then over uh, Psalm 18, in my distress, I cried out to the Lord and my God, I summoned. He heard me from his temple. My voice, my scream, he heard with his own ears. Do you see the parallel and the commonality of those psalms? There are others very similar to that. That's what these psalms had. Matter of fact, they usually had six elements, which were these. An introductory summary, kind of saying what, what Jonah said there. I cried out to the Lord in my distress, and the Lord answered me. There's your summary. Now he's going to go into detail of how that all evolved. So there's an introductory summary, a recollection of the crisis, the mess that you're in, then a cry, a scream for help, if you will, and then a description of the deliverance the Lord provides, and then vows being made in response of gratitude to that, and then praise to God. So it ultimately is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. That's its crescendo. That's where it ends. So this part of his prayer, though, the part we're looking at and just read, he had the summary up there, but now he's getting into the deep and dark condition that he was in. Getting down into the weeds, literally, as the text said. This part of the prayer is filled with dark imagery of Jonah literally being enveloped and being drugged down into the watery depths of Sheol, or the pit, as it's sometimes called in Scripture. In other words, referring to the underworld, the place of the dead. Listen to another psalm that depicts a similar crisis. Listen to this. This is Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2 and 14 and 15. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. You hear the same language? Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the depth, the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. You see, this was, this was common to the experience of God's people in the old covenant. And it's sometimes common to our spirits as well. In his crisis, in this portion of the passage that I read, what Jonah is doing is he's desperately trying to find poetic words that will express his extreme near drowning distress and his utter sense of God's abandonment of him. He knows he's messed up. He knows he has gone run, trying to run away from God, trying to put God out of sight, out of mind. He knows he's in, quote, trouble. But he's hoping God is somehow still going to be there, but he doesn't sense it. Everything is coming over him, crashing down upon him. He is despairing. He has the waves crashing over him. He has the weeds wrapping around him and the bars of Sheol itself 
are locked. And he's trapped in the watery grave. That's how Jonah feels at this point. Now, you remember, if you were here last week, I told you that according to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was upon this earth, told us that he, Jesus, meaning Jesus, he was a type, or excuse me, he told us that Jonah was a type of himself. Jesus told us, his disciples, those listening to him, that Jesus was the anti-type, the fulfillment of Jonah, the type. The type is fulfilled by an anti-type. The, an the type is the anticipation of something. The anti-type is the fulfillment so Jesus is basically saying, look, whether you know it or not, there's a strong correlation, there's a strong analogy, a relationship between what happened to Jonah and what is going to happen to me. I'm the greater Jonah. That's what he told them. But what Jonah went through, something similar is going to happen, but in a far greater way. That's what Jesus was saying. And here we see, as we see this amazing description of what's happening to Jonah, what he's feeling, the angst, the anguish, the distress, the sorrow, the heaviness, the abandonment, all of that that was pouring over and sweeping over Jonah's soul. And yet, Jonah's forsakenness as powerful and vivid as it was, as real as it was, it is nothing compared to what the greater Jonah would go through for his people, for those who believe. And I'm talking, of course, about the suffering, the passion, which we're going to be celebrating next week starts Passion Week on Palm Sunday. That experience of his passion and his suffering and his death. That is where we see the utter abandonment. What Jonah went through was trivial in comparison to what the Lord Jesus Christ went through for us. From withdrawal, from wrath, and from death itself and the entombment in the grave. Now, by the way, here's another teaching moment, teachable moment. Those of you that have been coming here for a while know that we sometimes use creeds. As a matter of fact, we're going to be using a creed known as the Apostles' Creed before we take communion after, this, after the message is over here in preparation for communion. We're going to be confessing our faith. And one of those articles in, the, in that confession, the Apostles' Creed, often gives Christians, even today, a, a pause or begins, they begin to scratch their head. And they wonder, what exactly does that mean? I don't understand that. When we say he descended into hell, has that ever puzzled you? Have you ever wondered about that? What in the world could possibly the Apostles' Creed be meaning by that? 
Well, if you're confused by that, I want to give you a little help from the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's two questions, 37 and 44. Verse, the 30 question answer to uh, question 37. What do you understand by the word suffered when it's talking about Jesus suffering? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. We'll say that in that creed. What is being said there? This is the answer. That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body, soul, the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from the eternal condemnation and gain for us grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Now, question 44 says this. What? Why does the creed add he descended into hell? This is the answer. To assure me and you, if you're a Christian, to assure me and you during the attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish and pain and terror of soul, on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. He experienced and suffered hell for us completely and utterly. And now we are released. The guilty go free. What a marvelous, marvelous gospel. And Jonah was a part of setting this up that Christ would ultimately fulfill. Well, that's the crisis. But what about the crossroads? Look at verse 6b in just a moment. I want to, before I do that, though, let me tell you, if you've ever been to Geneva, Switzerland, I hope to go there. That's, I'm part, I'm German, Swiss-German. Uh, I still want to go there. and got there yet, but uh, it's on the bucket list. Um, if you ever go there, there's what is known as the Reformation Wall, Wall of the Reformers. All the great reformers of Geneva, like Calvin and Knox and Beza and, and so forth. Um, uh, these guys, um, uh, Farrell, and, and they're all there, and a bunch of other reformers as well. But they have, on that giant wall, where those four figures of those four reformers were, there's this brazen, uh, 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 carved or engraved Latin expression, post tenebras lux. You know what that means? After darkness, light. After the experience of darkness comes light. Well, that's exactly what we see happening here at the crossroads. Jonah's experience you just, you, we've already depicted what he was going through. And yet, Jonah knew that God was sovereign and a just judge and that he stood condemned. He knew he didn't have a right to anything. But even so, he also knew that God was merciful to those who call upon him. So emboldened by God's character, he begins at this point to trust and to hope in God's merciful deliverance, even though he knows he doesn't deserve it. 
You see, you're beginning to get grace when you start understanding that. The reason why most people find grace an insult to their goodness is because they don't think they need it. They're not desperate enough. They don't see themselves in such a desperate position. Jonah did at this point. And yet now he dares to presume upon grace that is merciful, not deserving. You see, many of you know that we have a, another song that we sing around, a good bit around here. Now, I did it a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, I guess, called uh, Psalm 130, known as From the Depths of Woe. Listen to the words. From the depths of woe I raise to thee the voice of lamentation. Lord, turn a gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. If thou iniquities dost mark our secret sins and misdeeds dark, oh, who shall stand before you? Luther got it. Jonah finally gets it. Who can stand before God? Whose record is going to hold up in his court? No one's. And yet there is forgiveness with him that he may be feared. There is mercy available to those who call upon him and forsake what else they have hoped in before. You see, Jonah finally got it. And now he dares to believe there's hope even for him. It's interesting in verse 8, we find a Hebrew word there, chesed. And it is a word that we translate either mercy or grace, depending on the, the context. And that is what Jonah, even though he has been so despairing, now he has, is hoping and believing that, there's, that he will still his voice, his cry from the depths will reach God in his temple. He knew that's the place where God has come to dwell on earth. But you know what? It wasn't just that he hoped that somehow the transmitting of his prayer would make it all the way to Jerusalem and to the temple. Jonah was hoping for more than that. And he knew that he needed more than that. Because the temple was where what? Sacrifices were offered for sin. And there was this place called the mercy seat. One of our songs spoke of it this morning. The mercy seat. That was the place where God, because, as it were, in, in, in foreshadowing, taking these bloody sacrifices that could never do it themselves, but they pointed in forward to the work of Christ, the perfect lamb that would be sacrificed, and there would find those who did not deserve mercy would find mercy and grace to help in their time of need. Jonah was praying and believing that his prayer would reach the ears of the God who has a mercy seat for the forgiveness of sins. He believed his prayer would reach God because of the mercy seat. Jonah was toast, but because of the merciful grace of God, he walked, no, he swam after being spit out, out of the grave and into life again. You see, Jonah rightly understood that idolatry hinders people from receiving grace. That's in verse 8 or verse 9. Idolatry, our idols, they hinder us from grace because we think those things will do the trick. They'll satisfy us. They'll give us what we want, and they won't. They will all fail. And Jonah knows that. He at least recognizes that. He sees that literal idols and 
idols of all other kinds that aren't literal that we deal with in our time. He sees that those things are going to hinder you from experiencing God's mercy and grace. But unfortunately, Jonah's a lot like you and me. He didn't quite get it all. He was getting part of it. He was getting some of the message. But he didn't realize that some of those idols are very, very subtle. And they're very deeply embedded in the human heart. And so in one sense, he got the outward part. But he didn't understand his own heart fully yet. He doesn't see the more subtle ones that keep him from grasping all that God's saving mercy implies. And that is this. It is equally available to all, but not based upon merit, anytime, anywhere, anyway. No matter who you are, what you've done, what you've gained, none of that matters. It's based only. This kind of mercy, this kind of grace is available based on the work of another. And his name is Jesus. He, it is what he accomplished that allows the guilty to go free. It's what Jesus did. And Jonah doesn't quite fully grasp that yet, as you're going to see in just a moment. Jonah got some understanding of grace from his descent and his ascent. But my friends, grace is a very deep pool in which to sound. You're going to have to go deep into that pool a long, long way if you're going to begin to get it. Do you not realize we've been still trying to plumb the depths of love divine, as the hymn says, for thousands of years? And no one has still reached the bottom of God's amazing grace. It's only amazing when you end up in a place like Jonah and you recognize your bankruptcy then grace becomes more amazing. And Jonah's getting part of it. But oh, there's so much more for him and you and me to learn and know about grace. Now, the climax, briefly, just look there quickly, is in the last part of the ninth verse. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah speaks the truth. This is a creedal affirmation of the truth that God and his salvation is all of grace. Nobody else can enter in to that exchange. If you receive it, it's all based on your neediness and his provision of salvation. Jonah proclaims that he does what he doesn't fully yet realize, though. Sovereignty is administered by God. Grace is administered by God sovereignly to Jonah, to his people, and to others. And it's that last part that Jonah doesn't yet get. He still, you're going to see, he doesn't get that. And you're going to see that clear in chapter 4. He's getting part of it. He's making progress. But he doesn't fully understand. You see, the whole book of Jonah is the story of salvation, of the grace of God. Have you seen and embraced that truth? I hope you have.
Let's pray. Amen. Father, hear us now. Lord, help us to embrace the truth that salvation belongs to you and is provided by you and you alone and no other. And so we come to this table because this is the other, the only and other one who came and secured it for us, your own beloved son. Show us Jesus and be with us, Father, in this meal in Christ's name. Amen.